It is good to see all of you here this morning. We have a few folks who either we haven't seen in a while or, or some new faces. We welcome you and love to get a chance to personally just get to greet you and, and say hi to you afterwards. Um, and if you're looking for joining a community group, uh, just talk to our welcoming team. They'll be sure to put you on an email uh, and connect you to one of our excellent community groups this season. Well, again, happy Mother's Day to all of our uh, mothers. It is a challenging season in our, or moment, perhaps, in history for our country. As, uh, as many of you know, Roe v. Wade is before uh, the Supreme Court. And the church obviously has a, a very checkered past um, with this issue on uh, abortion. And uh, many of us who have either grown up at church and those of us who've grown up outside of the church uh, have you know, grown up in different contexts. And so uh, what I would just briefly like to say uh, this morning as we kind of enter into the season and wait with anticipation um, for the court's ruling um, is that Jesus' commitment is always, 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 always to the vulnerable. And what you have to be able to see is that there's not just one singular party in this conversation that's vulnerable. There are multiple. Uh, And that means that there is not space for probably blanket statements of an absolute statements that we can make as Christians, but rather we need to listen to James 1, which says, dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so all, all I'd like to call our attention to before we even jump into anything today is that there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of quick speaking. And we as Christians are called to be, the only thing we're called to be quick to is to listen, to learn, to sympathize, and to understand better, to ask questions, um, and to see as Christ sees both women, mothers, uh, people bearing children, and, and life and the potential of it and see that he values both deeply. So we're thinking about how to create spaces to do just that, to talk, to listen, to learn together. I think there's a lot of room for us to grow uh, as a church. But, you know, just as God showed us in the past two years that we really, you know, even if we're divided on certain issues, we still can come together as a church and say, at the end of the day, we're following Jesus. And that's what brings us together here. That's what unites us here. That's what allows us to sit together and say, you know, this is my brother, this is my sister, that we're family. So that is our prayer, our elders and our pastors' prayer uh, for us as a church during this challenging time. And it, obviously it strikes some of us in a very personal way. And so let's move to the, through the season very, uh, with big ears and small mouths. Well, last week we began a series in a untypical book, a, a bit of a rarity in sermons, uh, of Song of Solomon. 
or just the song or the song of songs. Um, and we're calling this series, it's the theme of our, our year, uh, The Way of Love. Uh, it, in the first verse, that's all we got to last week, it, it makes this bold claim that this is the greatest of songs because it is all about love. Um, and we're considering uh, this premise. We're created to love and receive love. And this love touches every aspect of life, giving it meaning and purpose when we understand love's power. Now it can sound like a bunch of uh, kind of ambiguous talk there, but when we understand that the Bible begins with this idea that God is love, and that God shows us love in Jesus Christ, and that whoever is of God must love, and that without love we are nothing. When you start to see the Bible from that perspective, we need to, we begin to see the great need for us to be students of love, to be disciples of love, to understand uh, the Bible's teaching on love, and there may be perhaps no greater book than the Song of Songs to show us what human intimacy, what love is supposed to look like. So with that being said, let me just jump in and read for us our passage Uh, We're just going to read the same one that we did last week, but really didn't get into it. Today we're going to get into it a little bit deeper. Uh, It's the first poem in the Song of Songs, if you will, the first stanza, if you will, um, from verse 1 to 8, chapter 1. So open uh, your hearts to God's word as we hear this. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The friends say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She says, I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kidar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I've not kept. Tell me, You whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. The word of the Lord. We pray, Father, that you would have us follow the sheep's tracks that have been led down this lane um, for thousands of years, and it would lead us to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. So I I recognize there is a, a great crime that some of you have committed in this room. Some of you have never seen Forrest Gump, right? But... I'm going to reference it anyway, and I, I, I realize this more and more is starting to date me, but so if you haven't seen it, hopefully like 
memes have resurrected it. So some of you younger folk, or those of you who have never seen it, have some sense, right? Uh, Tom Hanks, come on. Um, right, Forrest Gump, it's a it's ironic story of, uh, you know, this, this young man who's very simple in every aspect, uh, but ends up really changing the lives of those around him, always finds himself in the right place with just the right words, despite the simplicity. And, but the great irony of the story that makes it so delightful and just exquisite is that at the very beginning, his love interest, Jenny, tells him, Forrest, you don't know what love is. The great irony of that, and that you see time and time again, is that the truth is that it is Forrest Gump who does know indeed what love is, and Jenny who does not. And so the line, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Now, for many of us, we, we're smart people here. Many of you are, are, you know, we've accomplished things, we've gone to school, we have degrees, you, you, you are working, or you've, you know, made a life for yourself. But uh, social critic, Bell Hook says, most of us, most of our society does not know what love is. Uh, Most of us uh, have a very ambiguous understanding, we said last week, of what love is. In fact, we prefer that. We prefer to go about life with a, a very general, a very ambiguous sense of what love is because if we were to actually define it, if we were to actually come to a precision, a knife's edge, and shave away the excess to what is love exactly, we would then have to deal with uh, the fact that we are so far from it, the alienation from that experience. That lack, Bell Hooks says, feels like a terrible secret we have to cover up. And so this just isn't Bell Hook's opinion or Forrest Gump and Jenny. This is actually the story of the Bible. The story of how humanity so quickly left behind and forsook, abandoned God's perfect love. And that we've come to be now in a world where we've forgotten, we've distorted, we have a very tattered, uh, very incomplete picture of what love actually is and what it means to be loved. So in a way, our entire lives have been filled with very broken ideas. Love is something that you feel, we're told. Love is something that can be bought. Love is something you make in bed. Love is an urge. Love is something that happens naturally and effortlessly. Hence, people fall in love. Think about that imagery. It's just something that accidentally you serendipitously fall into. These are all narratives that we're told since birth, that we grow up in, but none of these actually work once you get into the living, breathing world of relationships. You find it's much more complex than that. Um, These are tragic lies, Hooks writes, our culture has handed down to us. Now, this is where Song of Songs comes in and, and hopefully can be a breath of fresh air to us. Uh, Commentator Ellen Davis says this. Uh, She says, The great sadness in our world, the absence of love experienced and given, are scars from what happened in the Garden of Eden. This place of intimacy, this place of perfect trust, this place of love, fellowship with one another and God. 
She says the great and terrible experience of exile as the result of disobedience of God, that's what's happened. But then she goes on. But what the Song of Songs does is it returns us to the garden of God. As we go through this, you're going to see a lot of garden imagery, a lot of garden symbolism, uh, a lot of like vibrant, lush imagery as they are talking about their love for one another. That's no mistake. Uh, Davis is saying that Song of Songs is so unique in all of the biblical canon because it brings us back and heals what we've lost some of in the Garden of Eden. And she says, through the imaginative vehicle of poetry, we may experience the healing of painful rupture of human intimacy, the beauty of nature, and communion with God. For those are three things that we immediately lost in the garden. Human intimacy, beauty of nature, and the communion with God. So, today, let's just, you know, we're going to go deeper into these things. So if today feels like, isn't there more? Yes, there is. Uh, We're going to spend, hopefully, Lord willing, the next two months in this. But today, let's just simply look at the ingredients for love, the invitation of love, and the sacrament of love. Now, before I begin on our first point, I do need to clarify because there, there is a tremendous, it, it's, it's complete and inundated with sexual symbolism uh, and passion, right? The Song of Songs. Now, what we need to make clear is that this, as some have wrongly interpreted this book, we're not being told that erotic attraction, sexual attraction, is to be equated with love. Okay, now as, Stay with me here. This is not saying that erotic attraction is to be equated with love. We need to understand the couple's sexuality complements and celebrates their their union, their explicit commitment to exclusive faithful love to cherish one another, as we'll see. But again, Bell Hooks reminds us, erotic attraction in and of itself is not a sign of love. Exciting, pleasurable sex can take place between two people who don't even know each other. Right? So, so, so you don't, it doesn't, just because there's sex does not mean that there is love. Right? Yet so many of us are misled that our erotic longing indicates who we should and can love. Not so. Not so. Let me just say that again because that's a very uh, helpful thing. Many of us are misled that our erotic longing indicates who we should and can love. Right? That's something for married couples to consider, that just because there might be sexual activity in the marriage doesn't necessitate that you are actively loving one another. We're going to expand what this idea of love really is. Song of Songs is showing us that, uh, as as Christian psychiatrist Glenn Harrison uh, puts it, listen to what he says, whether we are married or single in this life, In this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct. It's like our GPS for the divine. A kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of it as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing and urge us to go there. So this means what? This means that both those who are practicing who practice exclusively giving themselves by sacred vows to each other in marriage, and those who practice celibacy ought to have the same goal, 
The same goal to steward our desire for sexual fulfillment, ultimately understanding that it's a heart's longing for God. Okay, ultimately towards longing for consummation and fulfillment in Christ. So in other words, what this means, and I I think this is a book that, uh, let's be honest, it could off off the cuff, um, if read very quickly and lightly without much thought, is more challenging to singles and those you know, who are abstaining. Uh, it, it's more challenging for those who, who might not be in a married uh, relationship. Uh, this, so what is this saying? In other words, celibacy is not a withdrawal from Song of Songs uh, because someone in Q&A asked a really great question, you know, is this going to apply to those not in a married, uh, sexually active relationship? Absolutely, yes. Celibacy is not a withdrawal from Song of Songs. I don't want you to check it, but is actually the engagement of it uh, that sees even more plainly this is pointing to union and communion with God. All right? So as we read this, we need to understand that this is, was a book that Jesus loved and read and applied to him who, you know, uh, lived his entire life in a state of being fulfilled in his relationship with God. So he's able to read this book, which is talking and using this imagery, sexual imagery, uh, in a committed union uh, a, 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 that has uh, united each other through vows. But he's able to enter into that and say, this is really talking about you and my desire for you, God, my Father. So we're, we're on the same, hopefully... I wanted to say that so we can be on the same page as we move through this, that it's not talking to marrieds over here and, and those who are not married over here, but it's talking to deep longings in us. We're talking about human things that were created with a desire to be loved and to love. So firstly, the ingredients for love. What, is, what seemingly is lacking here? Let's talk about the ingredients of love. What is seemingly lacking is actually intentional. When we be, open up the Song of Songs, we're like, okay, we're going to be reading this love sonnet, this love story. There's something missing here to our modern minds. See, when we read this, we want more details. How did you meet? Uh, what did they like first about each other? Tell us the backstory. Give us the juicy details, right? Like, it, but it just begins with uh, the woman's declaration of love. See, we've been conditioned to believe that there needs to be at least some reason for why, some added value, some law of attraction at work, but we're painfully given nothing of a backstory. Much like Adam and Eve, they just are and begin, like, there's love. So Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook taught that Imagery of the Song of Songs exists precisely for the sake of making vividly real this rare love which is not derived from material benefits. You hear that? Love, the lover's mutual delight is completely non-utilitarian. You're, you're, the, 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 the writer, the author, intentionally doesn't give you anything else talking about how much they make or where they grew up. You're not given any of that from the beginning. Let me go on. The song shows us love in its purest form. 
This is the only place in the Bible where love between man and woman is treated without concern for childbearing, social, and political benefits of marriage. It is love for love's sake. Here's the essence of love. Pure desire and delight in the presence of the other. I love you because you are you. The only reason for them simply being loving the other is simply because they are themselves. And you're given no other reason than that. Now there are many things that they rejoice and delight and celebrate over. But you're not given any reason for why they should love the other person. And you see that is the point. That it begins so starkly and, and kind of is like hard for us to get into as modern people. right? We, we, we need this backstory, But that, that you see is the way that God loved you before you even ever were. Right? In fact, that is the way that the truest of all loves. It, it is Mother's Day. And so, uh, you know, in, in the best sense of a mother's love, there was a love forming even before she knew what you looked like. There was a sense of sacrificing and giving of herself even before you had a name. Right? There's something of that here, that before we're even told what the characters look like, we're told that they are loved. This is... This is what it means to be loved by God, friends. So now, we might wonder, and I know I've quoted this before, but we might now be skeptical. Was Fred Rogers singing to children, or was he just simply singing the song of songs when he wrote, it's you I like, not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair, but it's, it's just you I like, the way you are right now, the way down deep inside you. Not the things you hide, that hide you. Not your toys, they're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you. Your skin, your eyes, your feelings. Whether old or new. See, I think for many of us, when we're told that we're loved, that we're appreciated, our reaction is rather skeptical. Whether you actually voice it or not, the question in your heart and mind is, why? Right? Let's be honest. I, like when someone says, you know, I, I really, really like you. Your question is, why? <laughs> you know, what, what do you like about me, right? Um, and that betrays both our and perhaps their understanding of love that it needs qualifiers, Right? But love in the truest sense is just because you are you. That is the way, again, God loves us. The Song of Songs, however, reclaims love, let's define it as this, not a feeling, but a choice, an act of the will, which we give ourselves, uh, excuse me, in which we give to ourselves or to another so that they might flourish. Now, I, I modified that a little off Scott Peck's definition of love, but I think it's important that we understand that love is an act of the will in which we give to ourselves or the other because there is a need, and the Bible speaks of what it means to also love ourselves, love your neighbor as yourself. So there seems to be an implication that there is a way, you know, treat others as you would have done to you. There is this sense of understanding that we need to foster that maybe not quite in the sense of a secular, narcissistic, uh, it's all about me first, but that we do need to have categories as Christians of what it means to be loved, to love ourselves. 
interesting. And so this love finds its most truest vein when it is based purely in the sheer delight and acceptance of the other. Now this would be rather shallow if they had just met, right? Um, but what the reality of what we're shown here is there seems to be a tremendous familiarity with one another. Right? Verses two to three says, uh, we'll circle back to this at the end, but verses two to three says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, let your love uh, is better than wine. And there, there's a sense of physicality, a sense of action in that word love, your love, uh, your love, loving deeds towards me is better than wine. And your name is oil poured out. All of this evokes a deep familiarity, right? With a mouth, not just for kiss, kissing, but like how sweet the conversation is, right? Just everything that comes out of your mouth is precious, right? The acts of love intoxicating, the familiarity with one's name, their character, their identity is bound up in when it says your name, right? So it's like this, this anointing, this high priestly anointing that makes you right in my eyes. Now, you really do need to have both love and knowledge of the person. The will of the heart and the knowledge of familiarity to establish deep intimacy. These are the ingredients for love. And perhaps Tim Keller has said it uh, better than anyone else. To be loved but not known is comforting but shallow. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. There's a story of a hospice nurse, uh, you know, who once told this, she once told this story. She was caring for a patient who was an inmate. In fact, uh, when he came to the hospice home, he was in handcuffs. He was 44 years old, and he was serving this long sentence for robbery, but he was dying from this complication from AIDS. Now, he didn't want to call his mother because he was so ashamed of his life. But the hospice worker saw behind his shame and convinced him to go ahead and make contact. And so several days later, this frail woman, over 80, arrives. And you know, she has real grief in her face and she sees her son, whom she hasn't spoken to for ages, when she comes into the room. He's handcuffed to the bed. And this hospice nurse is afraid that this dignified older woman is going to in some way be harsh or judge him. But that's not what happens. They have their initial greetings, and then they kind of just look at each other, and their eyes lock, taking in all of the circumstance and suffering. And their roles fell away. The nurse said, the mother gazed at her son like a newborn child, like a saint witnessing a miracle with the vast heart of all mothers that he and his mother saw behind the mask. They saw each other's imago Dei, It was this moment of pure forgiveness and loving kindness. And they just sat for an hour and a half and just held hands. Not much needed to be said. And when she left, he turned to this nurse and said, now I can 
die in peace. He needed to be seen. He needed to be known, both the good and the ugly. And he needed to be loved. See, when these ingredients of being loved and known, accepted and delighted in, as we are, come together, there is an invitation to bring our whole selves that arises. So secondly, the invitation of love. And these next two points are a a little bit more brief. But there's an invitation that comes when we have the ingredients for intimacy, right? We see what makes the Garden of Eden so beautiful now. There is this transparency, this, this assurance, this promise of acceptance no matter who we are or how we come, that we can be ourselves, hence the nakedness that Adam and Eve have. It's not just this physical Uh, knowledge of one another, this physical intimacy, but the whole of themselves were before one another and they knew that they would be received. So the song ushers us into the Garden of Eden and it's restoring us. It's telling us how we were meant to be the way we were meant to be. Here in the space of vowed, committed love, we are loved free into being ourselves, taking off the illusions and armor we've constructed, vulnerable yet safe, transparent and genuine in all of our beauty and brokenness. John Wellwood, American psychotherapist, wrote on this, what's happening here, that we see both in Song of Songs and in the illustration I just gave. When we reveal ourselves to the other and find that this brings healing Rather than harm, we make an important discovery that intimate relationship can provide a sanctuary from the world of facades, a sacred space where we can be ourselves as we are, this kind of unmasking, sharing our inner struggles and revealing our raw edges is sacred activity. It belong, it's a God thing. We're entering into actions that now follow after what, the way God loves, which allows for souls to meet and touch more deeply. Now, I, I've been encouraged, like in staff we share, and, and just talking to some CG community group leaders, of just how in our community groups after the retreat, some of you have taken bold steps to do just that, to dip your toe in the water of being more transparent, to being more honest, to show not just the, the armor and the illusion and the facade, but to actually share some of the more difficult struggles and you've been received with acceptance. And what Wellwood is saying is that when we experience uh, acceptance of affirmation of love, um, we're making an important discovery. Something is being marked and etched in our souls that's telling us that rather than receiving harm, we've moved a little bit more towards healing. I won't get into it today, but that also means that love, while it is accepting the whole of the person, doesn't leave the person where they're at. But love uh, sees what the person can become and pours into them uh, so that they can flourish and grow even more so into the person that they're meant to be. That is a sacred space, as Wellwood says. It means it belongs to the church, firstly, now, I am very aware that there are many amazing spaces for community outside of church, and which are also acts of God, right? The Spirit's working in so many different ways and places. But we have the right as children of God to claim and say that, God, 
you know, you want to do this here. So my challenge to you is if you're not in a community group or if you're not in a space where you're sharing, where you're able to push and receive uh, and to grow and practice love, that you need to be in that in some form of another, in a space of shared faith. Um, so that is just a simple encouragement to you if, if, if you're outside that. It may come from within the church, but may come from outside the church, but you need to be in some form of Christian community where you are able to express yourself and receive acceptance to practice that form of love and healing. So now this is what's exactly happening in verse six. As love is being, uh, and intimacy have been created, those ingredients are there, the whole of her is able to come out and it's not all flowers and roses. Verse six, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. This is not talking about ethnicity, but it's talking more about a social class that, you know, in East Asian cultures, at least I know many other cultures shared this, that those who are of a higher aristocracy, you wouldn't be out in the fields all day, so your skin would be paler, right? Her skin has been darkened due to manual labor. Now, we, there's this insecurity that she's sharing with him. And with us. She goes on, my mother's sons, interesting way of phrasing it, don't you mean your brothers? My mother's sons were angry with me. Now what this is telling us is that there was familial brokenness. And we don't have enough time to dig this out as much as we should, but you know what she's talking about, and I know you know because all of us come from families that are broken in some way or another. Right? My mother's sons were angry with me. Whether or not this means step, the, you know, there was a divorce and stepbrothers, um, or uh, that these who should have been like brothers to me, but I can't even call them that because they were so inhumane. Right? The, the, the relationship has been so broken and so vicious and so lacking in any form of familial love and care. I have to refer to them as my mother's sons. You know, and there's this emotional abuse, anger, right? Those of us who have grew up in homes where anger was unchecked uh, just know how destructive that is. Um, They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So in this disrespect, this devaluating, this devaluing of her, uh, this, uh, they've uh, had her do all of the hard work, right? Again, this is not a strange narrative to many of uh, the homes that we grew up in where maybe one gender was expected to do uh, certain things and put their life's goals and possibilities to the side to serve the family. Interesting that such an ancient book would have such relevant wisdom for uh, today's conversations of uh, equality. What would usually be dark secrets that would have been intensely guarded are now able to be shared in the intimacy of partnership and mutual commitment. Now you're probably, you may not get here by next week in your community group. You may not ever get there at all in the community group as a whole, but you do. It is important that we are seeking and being willing to be open to fostering this kind of relationship with perhaps someone, maybe one or two people in our life. You'll have this. Rather than being off-putting, the knowledge that she's sharing with him, the knowledge that they're 
wholly each other's object of delight and acceptance allows her to share this painful knowledge, knowing that she'll not be judged or misunderstood, that it'll be tried to be fixed, but she'll just be heard and received. And in fact, is answered with an invitation for further protection from shame and a deeper fellowship. He just invites, you know, uh, let's be together. He says, let's talk about this. Let's fellowship more. So here's the task. Uh, Let's not, as we think about this kind of love, this kind of community, I think sometimes we can go out from spaces like this and ask, where can I go out and find this kind of love? Right? Uh, is it my community group? Is it, you know, a good close friend? You know, how are they providing for me? Like, where can I find love like this? Rather, let's reframe that question as we're thinking about the kind of love we're meant to experience and receive. What is keeping me from receiving love like this? Okay, the question is not, where can I get love like this, which is utilitarian. The question is, what is keeping me? And this is a question to commune with you and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what is keeping me from receiving love like this? From giving love like this? What barriers do I have to intimacy of loving kindness in my own life? Do you see the difference? Where can I get love like this? That's utilitarian. That's using. That further degrades and dehumanizes. Rather, let's ask, in what ways are you already, you're eager to, to bring, awaken me to love God? Where do I have barriers like this in my life that I could be giving and receiving already? Now lastly, the sacrament of love. So very briefly, uh, verse two says, We'll go back to this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And this, well, this, this is actually what I, I'd like to say about this. Uh, you know, we, we said at the beginning that uh, it, there is a, a, another step that those maybe not in a romantic relationship and those not married are, are, are reading into this um, that we have to read into this to be able to connect. But let me show you how this works and how it is a beautiful gift to be able to read this and maybe not have someone next to you to be able to, to, to say, this is why you immediately need to practice this into you. Uh, verse two, we're saying, you know, where is the sacrament of love? A sacrament is something that's invisible becoming visible, right? Uh, the sacrament here of the Lord's table shows God's love in bread and wine. But where is this, the sacrament of love? So it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now in Numbers, that's, if you're, a, a, you know, ancient Near Eastern, you know, Hebrew, growing up at this time, the kisses of the, uh, the mouth, that's redundant, mouth to mouth but that reminds you of the language that was revered in how God spoke to Moses. That there's a, there was a relationship of four, way back uh, of the ancients where that was spoken of, that God came and had a relationship to Moses. They would speak, and the language, the wording in Numbers 12 is, and they spoke mouth to mouth. There was this deep intimacy that the way God gave his word to his people 
scripture is to be the kisses of God where we commune almost as it were straight from the mouth of God. Verse two goes on, for your love, your acts of love is better than wine. Again, Israel would have remembered that time and time again their vow would, we will remember your great acts of mercy, God. We will remember your loving kindness. We will remember the ways that you loved Israel. All right, and then lastly, the, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. You're, you're, you're like this anointed one. You're like this Messiah. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. Now, do we see it coming into picture? The word, the acts of salvation culminating in the one whose name is like Messiah is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from the very first opening lines of this poem, we're given the one whom our soul truly longs and needs. That Christ is the sacrament of love. He is love incarnate, if you will. And Jesus shows us how to bring, how we can bring love into real physical ways, not just feel loving, but to do loving. What does that look to bring love into reality? Acts of care and generosity. See, Jesus tends his own vineyard. And this is why we're thinking about the Lord's table here. Jesus tends his own vineyard. On the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he, he exemplified love by washing his disciples' feet, right? He goes around the table, he strips off the robe and puts on the robe of the servant, washes their feet. But before he does that, did you notice he practices self-love? Have you ever thought of that? In John 13, Jesus, it says, he meditates that all of the Father has is his and that he will be he is so loved by the father and then it says and then he finished supper that tells us that he meditated on the gospel and he fed his his and met the needs of his body right that is basically the definition of self-care if you will that you meditate on the deep love that God has for you in the grace of Jesus Christ and you, you, you care for yourself physically. You make sure that you are, are in a position of restedness and wellness so that you can strip yourself and serve others in, in the most perhaps at times demeaning and, and base of ways but do so out of a full heart because you, you've received love first. And so friends as we come this is the way that Jesus he loves us and he shows his love. He doesn't think it. He doesn't want you to just feel it. He actively loves us. He took bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this covenant is in my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you. I'm going to invite our elders and deacons to come and help uh, distribute this today. Um, we'll have a place right here uh, on each side. But it, this is a table for um, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus are baptized and are members of a Bible-believing church. If, if you're following Jesus in those ways, this table is a reminder for you. If not, Jesus gives his love to you in a way that is tangible, uh, his church. So come stay around, stick around, and consider what it means to be a part of his church. So with that, we'll come.